0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au.
1: Okay, well... Um, Jared read out Exodus 9 before, we are in, a, uh, we are in week 5 of a 7 week series, walking through the first half of the book of Exodus, that's going to take us up to around Easter, and um, what we'd basically be doing is just kind of taking these large strides through this, this really involved, really spectacular narrative of God freeing his people from slavery in Egypt, to leave Egypt and to come and worship him. Now we're covering chapters seven to eleven today in our in the whole thing, and, and covering is a generous word. Like I'm like we I'm not going to be covering it all. I, we just can't get through these five chapters. And not only is it five chapters, but it's five chapters about the ten plagues of Egypt. So nice light reading material this morning. Like you know, really easy for us. Like this is this is fine. It's like reading you know something simple. Um, nothing about you know God's judgment or anything like that. Really simple stuff today. Um, but we are using uh, chapter nine verses thirteen to 26 as a bit of a thumbnail or um, snapshot or maybe just a cross section of the plagues. The the seventh plague that we just read about, the hailstones being falling from the sky and this huge hailstorm, that gives us just a bit of insight into the rest of the plagues that are going on. One of the things that we often hear our kids say all the time is Mom, Dad, come see what I just did. Mom, Dad, come and have a look at this. Now often it's that They've just drawn a picture and they're very proud of it. Or they've just built something out of Lego and they're really proud of it. They really want us to see it before their brother or sister comes and breaks it. Sometimes it's just that, especially for our youngest son who's in prep right now, he's learning to write. He wants us to see him write the letter M. That's a huge achievement for it. Come and see this. And what they're doing in that moment is they are asking us to come and share the joy of beholding, of looking at this thing that they are incredibly proud of. They, they, they've just enjoyed it. They've, they've enjoyed what they've done, and they want us to come and see it and enjoy it so that we might be proud of them. And what our kids are doing in that moment and what uh, we're doing in that moment is we are glorifying them and their creation. We're looking at what they've made and we say, wow, that's amazing. This is incredible. That's so neat. That's so tidy. You did so well. You're so clever. That's amazing. You're amazing. And we praise their work and we praise them. Looking at something and enjoying that thing is how we glorify something. And the, the more beautiful or wonderful that thing is, the more we're going to enjoy it and the more we're going to sing its praises, the more we're going to glorify it. When we witness something, something amazing, our breath is taken away, we are filled with joy and we start to praise it. And so a Christian is simply someone who looks at Jesus as we read of him in our Bibles. A Christian is someone who looks at him, finds him incredible and beautiful, and glorifies Him by enjoying Him, enjoys Him, enjoys how wonderful He is, takes great pleasure from Him and what He's done for us. And we glorify Him, we enjoy Him, we, we, we center our lives around Him. Jesus is just incredible. He's enjoyable. He is worthy of praise. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, Jesus is amazing. If you forget everything else I say today, Jesus is amazing. Take those three words home today. He's incredible. Yeah, I love him. I absolutely adore him. And the more I grow in my faith, and the more I grow older, I just get more and more in love with the guy. And my hope today is simply to point us to the beauty and glory of God as we find Him in His Word, as we learn about Him in His Word, and by the power of the Spirit, our breath would be taken away. That's my hope. That we'd be filled with joy as we simply just look and gaze at God. If God really does love us, as the Bible says He does, and if God really is. Glorious and wonderful, as I've just been saying, and as the Bible tells us, then we should expect God to point to himself and glorify himself in our midst. That should be our expectation of God. We should expect, if he he loves us, and he wants us to be filled with joy, then he should point us towards himself. That makes sense, right? If he's the most wonderful, glorious being, and so that's what I want you to take home from me. take home today. This is my main point. God loves you, and therefore, because he loves you, he wants you to know how incredible he is. God loves you. Therefore, he wants you to know how incredible he is. God's glory is the purpose and the reason behind the ten plagues that we read about in Exodus 5 to 11. So that's why that's the main point. So we're looking today at Exodus chapter nine, verses thirteen to twenty-six. Gives us a good, comprehensive snapshot uh, cross-section of the ten plagues. Doesn't give everything, so I do encourage you to go home and and read Exodus chapter seven to eleven. It's good reading. There are four things I want to take out of this passage today. I want us to I want us to see God's power, God's glory, God's judgment, and God's grace. God's power, God's glory, God's judgment, and God's grace. And all we're going to do today is look at God. And we're going to hopefully see these things. So firstly, God's power. In our passage today, we have as an example the seventh plague, these, the hail, hail coming down from the sky. Hail is a scary thing. There were some storms that passed through, and we've had a week of wild weather, but in some of you, if, if you live in like Lansborough, Mullaney kind of way, huge storms again last uh, Thursday night, I believe it was. Some people here in our church were without power for over 24 hours. Um, Hailstones hail coming down. Hail's scary. Big storms are scary. They make you feel small. Uh, I've got some pictures up behind me. This is a hailstorm that we endured in, 20, in November 2019. We've been living in our, our house for about a year at that stage, and hail storms... Like, In my experience at least, hail is normally the size of a pea and it comes for about a minute or two, maybe three minutes if it's a bad one at the start of the storm and then the rest of the storm hits. But this this hail was the size of golf balls and lasted consistently for 20 minutes. Now, 20 minutes is a long time for loud noises like that. Initially, it was really quite exciting, like, whoa, this hail is crazy. Like, you know, it's kind of, and then after a while, you're like, this is actually getting a little bit scary. And then windows start smashing, and hail was actually f- coming in sideways, and that, there was some hail that smashed the window, went over the top of our bed, and was damaging walls on the other side of the bedrooms. Um, we had to get a new roof afterwards, rode off one of our cars, smashed in windows, beat up our house, destroyed our garden. And, and just towards the end of it, um, I was starting to gather the family into our pantry because that was the only place in the house that didn't have windows. And I was like, okay, at some point, I was like, this has got to end at some stage, but it's been, that was like 15 minutes. And it was scary. Like the noise was just ferocious. And I think it would be safe to say that our hailstorm in, hail in Beringa in November 2019 paled in significance to this one. Reading from verse 23, The Lord sent thunder and hail. Lightning struck the land, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. The hail with lightning flashing through it. We read before from the ESV there was fire coming down. Lightning flashing through it was so severe that nothing like it had ever occurred in the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout the land of Egypt, the hail struck down everything in the field, both people and animals. The hail beat down every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field. Ferocious, ferocious storm. This is the extent of the power of God. The floods that have raged recently, or maybe you've seen the, the tides as they crashed through Bribie Island a few months ago, it makes us feel small, doesn't it? Like, like, we as human beings can kind of make plans, but then we see the weather happens and we just, God is, God is powerful. There is no one like him. His power is unlimited in every way. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 15, talking about his power and actually flexing his power, just before the seventh plague hits, God actually, speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, flexes his power but He flexes in front of Pharaoh. He says, by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. In other words, it doesn't take God 10 plagues to wipe out a nation. He could have done that in one go. That's what he said. I could have done this once which tells us that the destruction of Egypt economically and with its military, that wasn't the first purpose of God's uh, God bringing the plagues against Egypt. God had another agenda, which he outlines in verse 16. He says, however, I have let you live for this purpose. So this is the purpose of the plagues. To show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. So that there is our first and second point for this morning. God's purpose in the plagues was to show Egypt his power and so that the whole world would come to know his name. In other words, the the plagues are there. He sends in the plagues to glorify himself, to point to himself. The plagues demonstrate, firstly, the power that God has. They come according to his precise timing and plan and instigation. Now I've read some commentaries this week that have suggested or, or talked about the, the suggestion of that these were natural phenomena like the Nile was turned to blood and that's why the frogs left and then the frogs brought disease and so on and so forth. But when you, when you read through this, you see not just the bringing of, the, of these plagues but also the ending of these plagues as well. I don't think you can read through Exodus 7-11 to 11 with, with that in mind and, have, and, and maintain intellectual integrity with that. They aren't natural phenomena. They are purposed by God to demonstrate that Yahweh, not Pharaoh, Yahweh, not the the pantheon of Egyptian gods that they worshipped, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is powerful. He is the mighty creator and all things sit under his jurisdiction. Pharaoh, the, the most powerful man in the world at that stage, had nothing on the God of the universe. The God who created the entire world was now unmaking his creation at his will. God is unlimited in his power. What we see in the plagues, he doesn't just bring in a sledgehammer and starts going crazy. His power is displayed in control at precise timing, exact locations, over specific individuals and parts of the created order. And as Christians, we need to keep in mind, we need to remember, know, keep up our sleeve that God is powerful. It's a good thing for us to remember that God is powerful. The Bible teaches us that God is omnipotent. He is unlimited in his potency. It's a good thing for us to gaze upon and and think about the unlimited power of God. When national powers around the world act as if they are in power, they are in control. We need to remember that God could handle them with one hand. God is in control. God is powerful. The second point is God's glory. So back to verse 16, he says, I have let you live for this purpose to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. So it's not just making his power known to the Egyptians and to the Israelites. It's about the world coming to know his name. God wants the world to know his name, which is synonymous with his glory. You can read about that in Exodus 33. And this is something that is repeated throughout the Exodus narrative. Over and over again, God wants the world to know his name, to see his glory. And something that's fascinating is if you fast forward from this scene about 40 years uh, to the book of Joshua... And, and, and Israel are about to enter the promised land of Canaan they had been promised by God. And they, they send the spies in, and the spies go to this town called Jericho, and there's this prostitute there named Rahab. And Rahab's hiding the spies, and she comes to the spies, and she says, yeah, we know who you guys are. We know exactly who you guys are. You're the ones who were saved from Egypt by the Lord. And she uses the name of the Lord. She uses the name Yahweh. She says, the whole town is wetting their pants right now. That's not in my Bible. That's a paraphrase. But this is, she said, this is, the Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth below. His name being known throughout the world. You see, the purpose behind these plagues is not just to rescue his people, it's to show off his glory. See, God is flexing here. He wants people to know how him. He wants, he's pointing to himself. God is all about God. Now, whenever I think about this, I think of Ron Burgundy in the movie Anchorman. Now, I don't recommend that you see that movie. I've never seen it. I've, you know, I was praying that day. Um, and, uh, but somebody told me about this, and then I prayed for them as well. Um, but apparently there's this scene um, where... Ron Burgundy, who's this very self-centered individual, is standing in front of the mirror and he's saying, I look good. I look really good. And he yells out to his co-workers, hey everyone, come and see how good I look. Now that's what God is doing here, although there's one very crucial, and there's many crucial differences between God and Ron Burgundy, but there's one, which is that Ron Burgundy is a seriously flawed human being, and God is flawless if God wasn't holy and perfect and righteous in every way he shouldn't be pointing to himself but if he is he has no business in pointing to anything other than himself. God is the most glorious being in existence and there is nothing and no one like him. Our eternal desires and yearnings can only be quenched on the eternal god our souls long to stare upon and to dwell upon the eternal beauty and holiness of god and it's for these reasons that god displays his glory to us this is why Exodus isn't just about freedom or rescue. It's about freedom to worship him. It's about rescuing his people to worship him. Over and over again. It says, Let my people, Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Over and over again. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you're reading through Exodus, can I encourage you? Take a pen. And every time you read those words, just put a mark there, put an asterisk, something. You see it over and over again. This is about rescuing his people so they could come and leave slavery and see him and worship him. In Jesus Christ, we are freed from sin and we are freed from death and we are freed from guilt and shame with the purpose of glorifying and worshiping God. To have him central to our lives. We were created to worship God, to enjoy him, and to let our lives and our thoughts be caught up in the infinite glory of God. Every single one of our longings and, and is evidence of the fact that we exist to glorify God above all things and to hand our lives over to him in worship. Our lives were designed to have God at the absolute center of them, and, and our souls will oscillate and be frustrated and be angsty until they start to magnify the Lord. There's God's power, God's glory. And now we get onto my favorite topic God's judgment. It's not my favorite topic, but we need to see it. The plagues raise a very big question for us about the judgment of God. God is clearly bringing justice down upon the heads of Pharaoh and the heads of the people of Egypt there. Now, this is an area that a lot of Christians struggle with, the, the judgment of God. We might wonder how God is truly loving if he also judges. For many, judgment is the antithesis of love and grace. And so the idea that God would judge humanity not only seems archaic or over the top for our society, but also the opposite to love. That being said, our society also loves Justice. We're glad that wickedness and in evil actions are held to account and we should champion uh, justice for the weak and for the oppressed. I'm sure that all of us over the last couple of weeks have been yearning for justice as we look at what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Yearning for justice to take place. And so the very fact that we struggle with the doctrine of God's judgment exposes a far deeper issue for us. The deep issue is that we want justice to happen, just not on us. I want justice to take place, just not on me. We are easily aware of the faults of others, aren't we? Like some of us are experts on the sins of other people. One of the most piercing things that Jesus ever taught was from Matthew 7 about the the log and the speck. Commenting on the nature of humanity to pass their own judgment, Jesus asks, why do you look past the plank in your own eye in order to address the splinter in your brothers? You're a hypocrite. Take the plank out of your own eye and then address your brother. But our society, we don't do this. Because we don't do this because of the lie that says all people are generally good. Apart from a few bad apples, people are overall good. And that lie exists because without it, we would have to face the problem of our own sin. We would, come, we would have to come face to face with the reality of the brokenness of our hearts. We're okay with judgment when it comes down upon someone who is really, really bad, but when it comes down on someone who we think is probably good or are or, or, or even ourselves, it causes all sorts of panic for us. But the Bible teaches us that we fall short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Can you see the emphasis he's putting on no one, no one? All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now this is not to say that humans are incapable of doing good. We certainly are. But in terms of doing good to the degree that we can escape the judgment of God, well, we all fail in that category. Some people certainly are more evil than others, but we are all in the same boat. We all fall short of God's perfect standard. There is not a single one of us who can obey our way into God's favor. Each of us deserves to be destroyed because of our rebellion against God. I read it this way, um, put, uh, read it in a book this way, uh, this week, and I'll d- adapt it to our context. Suppose three people try to swim from here to New Zealand. The first person can't swim at all and they get to King's Beach and they, they flounder out past the breakers and then drown. The second person is, has my swimming capacity. So they get maybe one, two kilometers on a good day, but in the op- open ocean, drowns. The third person, though, is an Olympic swimmer, used to open ocean swimming, and they get 30 kilometers, 40 kilometers, but then they still drown. Which one of them made it to New Zealand? None of them. This this is our standing before God. There is no one righteous. No one has obeyed God to the degree we have all fallen short of the glory of god and if we struggle to accept that god should ever judge us it's because deep down we believe that god has no right to hold us to account if we're saying that essentially what we're saying is god doesn't have the right to judge but i do and we put ourselves in the place of god you see when we start to think that way It's not just our sin that is getting in the way of our salvation. Our good deeds also get in the way of salvation. Because we look at ourselves and we say, yeah, I'm I'm the one who should be judging. If you believe that there is something other than Jesus that absolves you of judgment, then your faith is not actually in Jesus, but in yourself. Commenting on this, Tim Keller writes, The main difference between a Christian and a religious person is not so much their attitude towards their sins, but towards their good deeds. The Bible teaches us that one day God will bring judgment against the unrighteous, and it also teaches us that no one is righteous. No one is righteous in God's sight by their own obedience, writes Paul. But then, in Romans 3.21... And we've got to hear this. And in, I don't think the words are on the screen behind me. I think I forgot to put that in. But just in case you want to go home, and re, just remember Romans 321, 321. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God declares us righteous when we come to him in faith in Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus, come to God with open hands saying, I don't have what it takes to make myself right before God and escape his judgment, and I've ruined my life trying. I need you to make me righteous. That's the nuts and bolts of faith. And when we do that, God declares us righteous. When we come to him with open hands, not with hands with a little bit of stuff in it, not kind of saying, God, yes, please save me and here's what I've got to offer. Please save me. He, let me contribute to this. Please save me, Lord. Uh, let me just like, make this a little bit easy on you. It's no, empty hands. I've got nothing to offer here. I need you to save me. That's what faith is. And when we come to God like that, he declares us, righteous in his sight spared from judgment and not just spared from judgment but were rewarded with a perfect record and all of the blessings and gifts that were obtained by jesus's obedience to god all of that is credited to us and it is given to us freely by grace and we receive it by faith in jesus christ that is the escape that we have from god's judgment Now, something that is worth considering too, and I I say this because we—if you read through Exodus seven to eleven—you're going to come up against something that's going to be hard to understand. See, when it comes to God's judgment, on that day when God does come, when Jesus does return and to judge the earth, no one's going to be able to look at Him and say that He was either too heavy-handed or too soft on people. God's judgment—I mean, God—God has perfect clarity. Of our hearts. Perfect clear vision. He knows all things. No one's going to be able to look at when, when God judges the world and they will, no one will be able to say, God, that's a bit rough. That, that's a bit heavy handed. Like that escalated quickly. God will meter out perfect, exact, precise justice on that day. And I say that because there is something in this section that causes an eyebrow to be raised, and that's to do with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in this section. The question that is raised here has to do with God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility. The Bible teaches us that both God is sovereign and humans have free will in the sense that God is sovereign over all things and mankind is free to make his or her own decisions. The Bible affirms both of these and holds them together in tension. And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a helpful case study for us to understand this. You'll notice as you read through Exodus, it'll talk a lot about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it will say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it will say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And sometimes it will say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so the question is, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, on the one hand, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It wasn't as if he was a good-natured guy and just was, you know, hanging out. No, he hardened his own heart. We explored this in the first week of the series, maybe the second week, looking at Exodus 1 and, and his, his decision to try and destroy the, the Israelite uh, race or just, uh, just to stop the, the rapid population growth, killing baby Hebrew boys. He made himself an enemy to to life. He made himself an enemy to God. When God creates the world and commands mankind to be fruitful and to multiply, Pharaoh stood at the fount of that life and tried to cut it off at its stem. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He did that. Pharaoh made himself God's enemy. And yet at the same time, we're also taught that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the Bible doesn't beat around the bush with that, doesn't try and hide that or conceal it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a distinct purpose to display his power and his glory to all people. Tim Chester offers this summary. He says, Pharaoh refuses to listen because Pharaoh hardens his heart. But it is also true that Pharaoh refuses to listen because the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. We have to take both perspectives seriously. Pharaoh determines Pharaoh's actions and God determines his actions. To put it another way, Pharaoh freely chooses to do what God had freely chosen that he would do. What is clear is that God planned the 10 plagues so he could display his power and glory. That's verse 16 we looked at. That's why he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Listen to this. The workings of this are mysterious, but its purpose is clear. And I say the workings of this are mysterious. I included that because the workings of this are a mystery. The obvious question in light of the judgment of God then is, how can God be just in holding people to account? That's a really good question. I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm going to let Paul, the Apostle Paul, answer that in Romans 9. Because in Romans 9, Paul addresses this issue. And actually quotes Exodus 9, verses 16. So, the words will be on the screen behind me. Paul gives two defenses. Reading from Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. Like we've already been examining that this morning. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, Paul has already, in Romans, commented on God's judgment for all of mankind. In Romans 1, stating that his judgment was God handing them over to the dysfunctional desires of their hearts. And it seems that Paul's first defense here is that God is doing the same thing here, handing Pharaoh over to the dysfunction of his heart. God has mercy on whom he decides to have mercy and that is essential to God's self-revelation when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory he says, I will declare my name to you and he talks about, I will show mercy to who I show mercy God has mercy on whom he decides to have mercy His absolute and perfect autonomy is central to his identity and disclosure to mankind. God is not unjust. Paul's second defense comes by way of another anticipated objection. He says, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Paul's answer to that question might trouble us. He says in verse 20, On the contrary, who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Well, what does form say to the one who formed it, "Why did you make me like this?" Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? This troubles us, doesn't it? It troubles us because we like to think of ourselves as being the center of the universe that we are so far below God that we have neither the wisdom or the right to question our Creator. Paul is urging us here. He's telling us our views of God have to be far higher than what we estimate, and our views of ourselves have to be far lower than we estimate. Not in the sense of self-loathing and self-hatred, but in the sense of unworthiness before God. Now, just in case we're tempted to throw in the towel at that point, Paul goes on and he turns this whole thing on its head and he argues back in verse 22. He says, What if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, The ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Again, to quote Tim Keller, he sums that up like this. He says, while God is the author of our salvation, we are the authors of our damnation. Sinful people prepare themselves for damnation, and God is patient with them to make his power known. And he also desires to make the riches of his glory known on objects that he prepared for mercy. To make this straight, it's not as if there's a whole lot of good people and God is bringing them down to be bad people, whatever it is. God looks at humanity. Each individual is in the exact same, per- in the exact same boat in terms of their standing with God. No one is righteous, no one is worthy. We deserve the judgment of God. And in his perfect and benevolent autonomy, his unbelievably deep, high, wide, and long love that we heard Matt talk about before. And by his amazing grace, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our destruction on our, on our behalf. And that is an offer for all mankind to those who believe. Some people will receive Jesus some people won't and god is sovereign over all of it and that's a mystery but he does this for his glory to reveal his mercy god has mercy on sinners who had no hope of ever saving themselves and this brings to him glory and, and this is why he does what he does and this leads us to the final point god's grace in verse 17 God said to Pharaoh, You are still acting arrogantly against my people by not letting them go. Tomorrow at this time I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail comes on them. Those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters, but those who didn't take to heart the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. Now that is a fascinating moment. God pronounces the seventh plague of hail, and as he does so, as he, when he does so, he also makes provision for anyone who would obey him to be saved from it whether they're an Israelite or an Egyptian, uh, a regular Egyptian commoner, whatever that is, and even people in the, in the high palace of Pharaoh. Even, this is extraordinary, he's making this order to Pharaoh, and he says, give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have into the field and to shelters. So God says, I'm going to bring this against you, Pharaoh, but I'm also going to say, if you bring them under shelter, they're going to be saved. God makes provision for, for saving the people and, the, and, and the, the animals that are there. And some of Pharaoh's officials, they take the point. Some of them had started fearing the Lord and they obeyed God. It seems that a number of Egyptians, even those in the palace, were starting to trust more in the God of the Israelites than in Pharaoh. And what this points us to is the fact that when it comes to God's wrath and judgment, he also provides us Shelter. He provides us the means of escape. Let's just jump straight to Jesus. In the same way that those who are under shelter would be saved from the storm, so too those who are under the cross will be saved from the wrath of God against sin. This is God's unbelievable grace towards us, that he would shelter us from what we deserve, and he would shelter us at the highest cost, at the cost of his son's life. This is God's grace. The judge came to be judged. Jesus hung on the cross and our perpetual disobedience was placed on his shoulders. He is our shelter. He absorbed the punishment. He absorbed the judgment that we deserved. And like what happened in Egypt, some will choose the shade and some won't. There are two options. We'll either say, I'm good. Or, he's good. Those are our options. If you say, I'm good, what you're saying is, I'm good enough. I'm good, I'm I'm fine. A couple of years ago, I sat at the bedside of of a lady who was about to pass away, and I told her the gospel again and again and again, and she sat there and she just said, I'm good. And she passed away two days later. Some of us, we'll look at Jesus and we'll say, I'm good. Like, I'm, I've got it sorted. Like, I've, I'm a pretty good person. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, absolutely, I'm a Christian. And, you know, I, I, I look at all the, I'm a Christian because look at all the things that I do for God. I go to church, serve, I tithe, you know, I help people out. I'm a good person. I'm nice and I'm kind. I'm, you know, look at, the, like, I just, look at all the things I do for God. That's saying, I'm good. That's pointing to yourself for your own salvation. But to say he's good is to say, I'm not. Though this world might want me to be blind to my sin, and though I once thought that I was a good person, I now see that I am not. And I find it outrageous and incredible that Jesus would die for me of all people. To say that he is good is not only repent of your sin, but also to repent of your good works that you trust in to save yourself. It's to recognize that you have no hope, even on your best day of ever reaching God's perfect standard, and you need Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and your works. We have a God who is powerful and glorious beyond all measure, and he wants us to see that. Because by gazing at his infinite beauty, we will come to appreciate and enjoy him more and more. And that will increasingly bring him glory. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way for anyone who would come to him to be spared from his wrath. And that comes only by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And those who come to him, worship him, serve him, devote their lives to him in grateful praise, turning their lives over to him in worship and glory and honor. Our God is powerful. God is glorious. Our God is a judge. And by being judged himself, our God saves us by his amazing grace.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life.